0: Turn in your copies of God's Word to the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. First chapter of 1 Corinthians. I'm glad Brother uh, Johnson is able to visit with us tonight. He told me the other day that he's uh, preaching through this epistle at his church as well. So uh, he's getting extra credit with this message tonight. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. And we're finishing up a section here uh, as Paul is dealing with this topic of the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And, and so we're going to be really looking at verses twenty through 22 through 25, but I want to uh, read this whole section, which begins actually at verse 18, down through verse 25, so we can understand the context. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, these are the words of God. the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Um, We read this whole section so that we can have a a full-orbed understanding of what's going on, but Paul really is kind of making a transitional statement when he begins in verse 22, he's closing out this one primary topic, and then he's going to move on to the wisdom of God and the foolishness of men as it relates to the ordination of the gospel ministry. But what he's dealing with here in these verses is primarily the great salvific truths and how they are perceived by the world but implemented by God. Amen. Paul is very adamant about driving this point home in the minds of the Corinthians. Mm -hmm. And as he wraps up this discussion on the wisdom of the world, he highlights the supreme importance of this topic. The end of this topic culminates in God's plan of redemption. If I could give you a title tonight, it would be this, The Plight of Man and the Plan of God. The plight of man and the plan of God. So what have we seen thus far in this section that begins at verse 18? Well, we've seen the utter contempt that God has for human wisdom. Oh, how our God hates the philosophies of men. And we've seen how worldly wisdom causes unregenerate men and women to think of the gospel message as something that's moronic and they count the cross as bizarre. Mm-hmm. But in the wisdom of God, God has allowed man to go his own way mm-hmm. in order to expose the foolishness of man's wisdom. Mm-hmm. Right. Understand the worst judgment that could ever come upon an individual is for God to leave him alone. Right, amen. The worst judgment that could ever come upon a nation... It's for God to leave it alone. Mm -hmm. And that's what God has done for those who think they're so wise, those who think they've just got it all figured out, those who think they can stand on their own, God has let them go their own way. Man boasts in his wisdom and he shuns the message of the cross and God lets him hang himself on his own rope. God says, oh, you think you're so wise? You think you've got it all figured out? Well, just go on and see how you do on your own. Right. Man must be brought to an end of himself in order to receive the gospel of God's grace. If he's clinging on to even a shred of his own inhibition, his own wisdom, his own intellect, his own skill, his own ability, his own prowess, his own spirituality, his own religiosity, he won't get one inch. right. With the God of heaven and earth. Man must see the folly. Of his wisdom. And relinquish his self righteousness. And God has allowed. The human race. To hit rock bottom. Right. And this is all in the wisdom of God. God as He has ordained the cross as the exclusive means of salvation. And all attempts to save ourselves, apart from the gospel, are utterly useless. Amen. And for Paul, this is the high ground that he will not surrender. This is a point which Paul will not yield. He is dogmatic that Christ is the only way to God. Human wisdom will never take you there. Amen. Amen. So we've seen the centrality of Christ and we've seen God's obliteration of worldly wisdom and now Paul closes the section with these words beginning at verse 22. He says, For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. The first thing I want you to see about this text is the condition. The condition. Here the Bible presents us with the awful plight of man in his natural state Man's issue is not one of intellect. Right. Man's issue is not one of skill. Man's issue is not one of training. If that were the case, we could simply teach man into salvation. Or he could be learned into redemption. But the great plight of the natural man, listen, is one of desire. One of desire. Look at it in verse 22. The Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. They, their problem is that they are desiring the wrong things. Man cannot come to Christ because he will not come to Christ. Amen. The greatest problem facing lost men and women is not some external hindrance outside of them. Amen but it is the depravity of their own unbelieving heart within them that has no desire for the things of God. Man on his own is wholly incapable of changing his natural desires. Left to himself, man is stuck in this vicious cycle of unbelief and inability. He cannot come because he won't come, and he won't come because he cannot come. Because man is bound by that fallen nature. Why does man sin? Because he's a sinner. Why do pigs roll around in the mud? Because they're pigs. And pigs have no more the ability to wish themselves or will themselves into being cows than a sinner has to will himself into loving God. You're right. Now, I bring this out in order to expose the real issue that is facing lost men and women. See, oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, if I only had more scientific evidence, well, then I'd believe the Bible. Or if I could only see some historical proof, then I'd admit that the Scriptures are the Word of God. (laughs) But you must remember when you hear those objections, those things are not really the issue with that person standing in front of you. The problem is not with evidence. The problem is not with statistics. The problem is not with data. The problem is within their own unbelieving heart. Amen. And those other things just make for great excuses. Right. The late R.C. Sproul was asked by an atheist organization to come and participate in a debate on the topic of Christian apologetics. And this is what he said to them. He said, I'll do this dance with you. But I am convinced that you already know that God exists and your problem is not an intellectual one, it's a moral one. Your problem is that you don't have enough it's not that you don't have enough information or convincing arguments to know that God exists. Your problem is that you hate him. And what you need is to be reconciled to him. Amen. See, man's problem is not that he doesn't know there is a God. His problem is that he does know. And he knows that he stands at odds with that God. Right. Therefore, he must devise a way to eliminate this tension in his conscience. So he comes up with all kinds of theories. Atheism and evolution and idolatry and self-righteousness. Amen. I believe the greatest idol in America is called Jesus Christ. Mm. But it's not the Jesus of our Bibles. Right. It's another God. It's an idol that men have made up and they fashioned after their own desires, their own sinful nature, and they call it Jesus, right. which makes it twofold as blasphemous. When a self-professed atheist tells me that they don't believe in God, I like to say, well, that's funny because God doesn't believe in atheists. <laughs> He said in Romans 1 that in creation he's given enough evidence that no man has an excuse. No one will stand on judgment day and be acquitted of their guilt because they didn't know that God is. And this is what Paul is demonstrating in our text. The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. See, understand it's not just the atheists and God deniers in our day, but this is the problem of mankind. It goes all the way back to the Apostle Paul's day and even before ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. The Jews require a sign. As we've noted in earlier messages, the Jew was a very, very religious individual. He knew the letter of the law. He boasted in his Hebrew background. He was the most moral of the moralists. But all of his religion and all of his piety is empty and vain. Mm -hmm. He wore the right clothes. He listened to the right movies. He went to the right places. He knew all the religious vocabulary that you all know. Mm -hmm. He went to Sunday school. He was probably five minutes early for every service. But instead of actually drawing him closer to God, it only made him think he was closer to God. The Jew trusted in his own self-righteousness. He was convinced that he was right with God, not on the basis of God's grace, but on the merits of his own supposed goodness. Amen. So, when the Jew hears the message of the gospel, which says, You'll never be able to measure up, you'll never save yourself, you must forsake your traditions, you must turn from your religiosity, you must go to the Christ that you rejected and crucified and receive eternal life from him. When the Jew hears that, he's astonished. Mm-hmm. He can't believe it. So, what does he say? He says, I need a sign. The Jews require a sign. Verse twenty-two. How many of you have made these silly deals with God? How many of you have said something like, "Well, Lord, if you would just give me this miraculous sign, then I'll believe you. If you would really just prove yourself in my life, then I'll believe you." Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty-nine that it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeketh after Amen. a sign. Amen. See, the truth of the matter is that the Jews had witnessed many, many signs. Right. Think of all the miracles Jesus performed right before their very eyes. Mm-hmm. But what did He say there in that allegory? He said, you wouldn't believe if one rose from the dead. Yeah. Why? Because their problem was not the lack of, their, uh, of evidence. The problem was their own impenitent heart. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter what miracle you perform in front of a lost man, it will never convince him. Yeah, yeah. I believe there's plenty of physical evidence that proves the biblical account of creation, that proves the flood. But you could show him the fossils. You could show him the, the carbon dating and how, what a bogus process that is. You could show him all the evidence in the world. But unless God changes his darkened heart, it'll never convince him. You're right. The power of God is not in a sign, the power of God is the message of God itself. So don't be like the Jew who is already seeking after a sign while he rejects the message that God has given. Mm-hmm. All you need for faith and godliness is sitting in your laps in your Bible. Amen. Amen. Well, what about this Greek? The Greek seeks after wisdom. <laughs> this is the other category of unbeliever. Understand that the, the Jew and the Greek they are categorically representative of all lost people. Everybody fits into one of these two categories or both of these categories in some way, shape, or form. Either they're trusting in some false religiosity like the Jew, or they're like the Greek, trusting in and seeking after wisdom. Now the Greek is one who has no time for biblical Christianity. He he scoffs at the gospel. He derides the Word of God. He's a pagan and he's proud of it. He considers himself to be so intellectual He's indulged in the amusements of life. He's enamored with the philosophies of men. The Greek thinks that he's just too smart for God. Mm -hmm. Have you met someone like that? Mm -hmm. This is the one who's progressive in his ideology. Mm -hmm. He prides himself of being tolerant and accepting of so many beliefs. Mm -hmm. He loves subjective truth. He's pragmatic and he's postmodern. You're right, he's right, we're all right. Nobody's wrong. Imagine that. To the Greek, everyone has their own little truth. What's true for you may not be true for me. What's true for me may not be true for you. But see, there's one thing that the Greek just cannot accept. In fact, there's one thing he hates. And that is the exclusivity of the gospel. Right. Oh, it's fine if you believe in Jesus. It's fine if you go to church, but the minute you confess with the Scriptures that Jesus is the one and only way to God, the exclusive means of salvation, this wise Greek has no time for that. Right? If you believe that, you're a narrow-minded bigot as far as he's concerned. Mm-hmm. He loves all philosophies except the one true philosophy. Right. He loves everything man conspires, but he hates what God has set forth. And there are those in our day who are just like this. They refuse to come to Christ because they will not forsake their intellectualism and abandon human wisdom. So you must admit, we must admit that we're not that smart after all. We don't have it figured out after all. So whether it's a false trust in our own self-righteousness like the Jew, or a reliance in the philosophies of men like the Greek, these things only lead to condemnation. Right. And they must be repented of and turned from and forsaken if we are to come unto Christ. Right. And with these two examples, Paul covers the pale of fallen humanity. Are you like the Jew? Would you rather cling to your moralism and cling to your empty religion? Or are you like the Greek, satisfied with the devisings of men? Have you no need for the Lord Jesus Christ and his work upon Calvary's cross? Now, this isn't in the notes, but I want to put this in here because I realize I'm talking to believers. Those that I know that that your test I know your testimonies. I know the, the faith that you've exhibited. So I want you to understand that this is not just something that speaks of how we get in the faith. But far too often we have this idea that we get in through the way of Calvary. But then after that, in order to progress in the Christian life, we need to then start relying on ourselves, our own works, our own ability to figure it out. But I want you to understand that your progression in grace is not dependent upon your own self-righteousness. You're right. Nor is it dependent upon the things that you come to learn by way of study. Though, yes, you should progress in righteousness. uh, You better progress in your studies. But if you're to be approved unto God in anything you do, even as a Christian, it will be by the grace of God. This is the condition that man is both unable and lacks the desire to ever come to Christ on his own. But I want you to see secondly the commission. The commission. Verse 23. God gave Paul a specific commission to evangelize these unbelieving Jews and these unbelieving Greeks and all those who fit into their category. And Paul's commission then is our commission now. This is our commission. So what has God told us to do about these men and women who have no desire for Christ? Well, before I answer that, let's think about this. What would man's wisdom tell us to do? Man's wisdom would tell us, well, if they're not interested in Christ... We need to figure out what they are interested in and we need to offer them that. Amen. The purpose-driven church movement that started out in California. You know what they did when they planted a new work? They sent out flyers and questionnaires in the community asking them what they wanted church to be like. And then whatever they said they wanted it to be like, that's what they gave them. The Jews require a sign. Give them a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. Give them wisdom. If our society wants a hip-hop rock band concert every Sunday, let's give it to them. And then maybe after you've got in their attention, maybe after you've got their attention, and probably their tithe too, then you can sneak in just a little bit of Christianity. See, this is the strategy that has been adopted by many churches in our day and age. They designed their services to appeal to the carnal desires of lost men. Amen. Whatever the culture wants, there's always a church out there that's willing to give it to them. But I want you to see that this commission that Paul received from God was categorically opposed to and polar opposite from the strategies of man. Look at verse 23. It begins with this word, But. Amen. Noting the drastic contrast, highlighting the vast difference. Paul said, yes, I know what man wants in his sinful and unbelieving condition, but we preach Christ crucified. Amen. This was the message of the Apostle Paul. And 2,000 years later, this is still the message of any gun called preacher. Paul was not commissioned to appeal to the culture around him. He did not seek the world's approval. He was determined never to waver from the proclamation of Jesus Christ, giving his life on the cross as a ransom for sinners. Now obviously, Paul did not only preach one sermon. No, no, he addressed many issues. Many practical issues. He spoke of family. And he spoke of marriage. He spoke of our civil responsibilities. But everything Paul ever wrote and preached was couched around the message of Christ. Amen. So as we preach the whole counsel of God, we must never attempt to teach anything, say anything, or do anything that is disconnected from the cross. Everything we do, Every aspect of our ministry must be characterized and saturated in Christ and Him crucified. This message must be proclaimed unapologetically, unashamedly, without compromise, and without dissimulation. We must have the message of the gospel radiating in our hearts, pulsating in our brains, and flowing through our veins. We must preach a raw and unvarnished gospel. Amen. This is the commission that God has given us, brothers and sisters. The gospel must take the foremost place of preeminence in all of our singing, in all of our preaching, in all of our fellowship with one another, and listen, in all of our encounters out in the world, as we go day by day witnessing and telling others. The gospel must be so fresh in our minds that we open our mouths and it just rolls off of our tongues. Amen we must be a people by, of, and for the gospel. We must have our minds, hearts, voices, and actions fixated upon the message of Christ dying a substitutionary, sin-bearing, wrath-propitiating, soul-saving, justice-satisfying, life-giving death upon the cross of Calvary. And someone asks you, what do you do down there at Christ Fellowship? By the grace of God, I want your answer to be We preach Christ crucified. Amen. And we see the world's response to such a message. There in verse 23, unto the Jews a stumbling block. The message of the cross is a stumbling block to the self-righteous who don't perceive their need for a Savior. They were expecting a Messiah who would come to conquer the Gentiles and break the yoke of Roman oppression and restore them in their land. But Jesus came to conquer their unbelief, to break the yoke of sin, and to restore them unto God. And the Jews missed the message of the gospel by 10,000 miles. And so too do many people in our day miss the purpose of the cross. They want Jesus to save them from loneliness and to free them from unhappiness. But they are oblivious to their great need of freedom from sin and salvation from the very wrath of God. Mm -hmm. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, but it's unto the Greeks foolishness. This message is foolishness to those who are so wise and so smart. They count the gospel as idiotic, Mm -hmm. moronic, imbecilic, stupid. The problem with human wisdom... Is that it is of man, through man, and to man. Mm -hmm. Human wisdom is anthrocentric. Man-centered. And it fails to see that the world and all people in it were created for the ultimate glory of God. Therefore the message that the eternal destiny of everyone who has ever lived depends upon their relationship to an itinerant preacher from Bethlehem that was followed around by some fisherman and a tax collector and died an ignominious death on a cross and wasn't evil to save himself, you mean to tell me that my eternal destiny depends on that message? Mm-hmm. The Greeks say that's foolishness. Mm-hmm. So we see the world's response And we see our commission. So a great question arises before us. Perhaps you're already thinking this question. If the natural man by himself will always and only reject this message, why does God command us to preach it? I mean, isn't God smart enough to know how to give us a message that the world will respond to? Well, that's the commission. But thirdly, I want you to see the calling Look at verse 24. Seen the response of the Jew and the Greek. But look at verse 24. Unto them which are called. Amen. Now, if you're an underliner or a circler, underline or circle that word called in your Bible. Right. Because that word called makes all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. That word called uh, sets the trajectory of our ministry. Yeah. It's, it, it gives us our motivation. It gives us our ultimate end goal. It tells us why we do what we do. It explains why God has commissioned us the way He has. This word called makes all the difference. Yeah. This word called separates whether or not we're going to be a gospel preaching ministry or whether we're going to be some kind of Arminian recruiter Program. You're right. Amen. Amen. Here we see the manifestly wise and all-glorious plan of God. Amen. God is saving a people for His own name through the gospel of Christ crucified. And He is not dependent on the wisdom of man to figure it out, nor on the religiosity of man to merit this salvation. Amen. In God's wise plan, God is calling sinners through the message of the Gospel and He is overcoming their self-righteousness and overcoming their conceived wisdom. He is solving man's great problem. Amen. Amen. Remember the reason why man cannot come to Christ? It's because he has no desire to come. You're right. Amen. And in this call, God is changing the desires of those He has purposed to save And He is making His people willing in the day of His power. He's changing their desires. He's changing what they want. I know there's people from North Carolina and Kentucky here tonight. So to put it in terms you'd understand, when God pleases to call a sinner, He fixes their warner. That's it. Amen. Amen. So what kind of calling is this? What does it mean to be called of God? Well, I want you to understand this. There are two views on the calling of God. There's two theological views that explain what the calling of God is. The first view is this. There are those who believe that there is only one type of calling. Uh, They believe that God calls all men in the exact same way. And they don't believe that there is any power in this call to enable man to receive it. This type of call does not change the will of man or the desires of man. According to this view, man must produce the desire to come to respond from within himself. But mm. well, we've already seen how the natural man responds to the true message right. of the gospel. Mm. He is unable to produce that desire from within You're himself. Right, right? Therefore, this view of what it means to be called of God is atrociously false Amen. and must be rejected. You're right. We've already seen that man left to himself rejects the gospel but in verse 24 unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks the same people who rejected it in verse 23 now all of a sudden they think that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What makes the difference neighbor? Those who receive this calling, they no longer find the gospel to be a foolish stumbling block. Rather, the gospel becomes the wise power of Almighty God. Therefore, there must be another view of the call, which is the biblical view. What does it mean to be called by God? Well, first of all, you must understand that there is not merely one type of call, and all men are not called in the exact same way. The Bible teaches that there are two distinct Callings, two distinct calls. One is the general call, the general call of the gospel, which is issued anytime time the gospel goes forth in word or in writing. Mm-hmm. We, we are issuing that call right now. Mm-hmm. And any preacher, any writer, any Christian for that matter, man or woman can issue this call. It is an outward call. But you must understand that this general call has no power to save anyone. The preacher can take the message to your ears and get it in your head, but he can't go any further. Right? Amen. But there is another type of calling. Amen. <laughs> Amen. And it is a call that accompanies the general call. It's concealed within the general call. But it's not a call that any man can issue. It is the call that can only be given by a sovereign God. Amen. It is the inward call of the Holy Spirit Amen. upon the hearts of those whom God has purposed to save. It is a call of sovereign grace. Amen. It is an irresistible call. It is a call that is so mighty and so efficacious that every ounce of your depravity could not turn it down. You're right. Amen. You're right. It's a call that has all the power needed to change the desires of those ensnared by sin and lost in unbelief. Those who receive this call are gifted with a new will and the ability to respond. The inward call causes the sinner to realize that the message of Christ crucified is the power of God. That's it. Amen. By grace, the sinner comes to know in his heart when he sees the message of the cross, he says, that's my Savior dying upon the cross. That's Jesus shedding His blood for me those who receive this sovereign call are transformed from within. And they flee to Christ because they see that He is the only one who can redeem them. Right. He is the only one that can save them. And what they once saw as weakness, now they see as power. Right. What they once saw as death, now they see as life. Right. And what they once saw as foolishness, now they see as wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. And no one but our sovereign God Could cause this change within them. This is the call of verse 24. All men do not receive this call. For if all men received this call, all would be saved. That's it. That's proof of it. But those who are saved, why, why, why did God establish it this way? Why did He make it to where the only way man can be saved is through this inward call that only He can give? Well, because if man could be saved by that general call, then who makes the deciding decision? Have you ever heard that foolish line? Well, God voted for you, and the devil voted against you, and now it's your turn to vote. Well, friend, you can't vote if you're dead, unless Amen. you're voting for Joe Biden. Amen. <laughs> well, that's exactly right there, Friend, if man was the one who made the deciding vote, who made the final decision, then salvation is to the glory of man. And you're saved because you are presented with the same information and you make better decisions than other people. It's no different than the Greek philosophy. You're right. See, the Greeks said, we all hear this wisdom, and and those who understand it and follow after it, we're the virtuous ones. Do you understand salvation? It's not according to the will of man. It's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy and is pleased to reveal himself through this inward call. Therefore, the salvation of any sinner. All glory to God. That's it. Amen. Amen. Why are we here tonight? Is it because we just got tired of the world? Is it because we were parting up a storm, and we just decided on our own, suddenly, hey, we just really like church. No, we hated church. Yeah. We hated the things of God. We didn't want anything to do with it. We're not here tonight because we're better than other people. We're not here tonight because we make better decisions. We're here tonight because God has called us. You're right. And he was not obligated to call us. That's us. Right. But He called us because of His grace. Amen. Unmerited grace. Therefore, how much more ought we to give ourselves unto Him? Amen. Consider how powerfully wise the gospel is to those who have been called by God. If you're called to you, the gospel is this powerful wisdom. What, what, what is it that makes it so wise? See, man is helpless, utterly void of the, des- of the desire or the ability to save himself unable to initiate His own salvation. So the second person of the Trinity, God Himself in human flesh comes to earth fully God, fully man in the person of Jesus Christ. Genius. Yes. Genius. Which one of you would have thought of something like that? Uh-huh. Genius. And then, Jesus lives the perfect life that you and I could never live then He offers up His righteousness to you and me so that we can be partakers of the very holiness of God, which is the only way we could ever have a relationship with God. Brilliant. Brilliant. What other way could man be saved? Do you realize in order to be redeemed, in order to be reconciled with God, you need to be as holy as God is? How would you do that on your own? Right. No, the plan of God is brilliant. And then Jesus takes our sins, which separate us from God and condemn us to hell, and He goes to the cross, and He dies in our place, and He suffers the wrath of God on our behalf so that we don't have to go to hell. Oh, how wise. How wise. And then He sends the Holy Spirit into the world to personally and powerfully call unto himself, us unto Himself so that we can enter into the divine blessing that He wrought for us in His Son? What a gospel. Mm-hmm. What a Savior. What a gracious Amen. God. Man could have never devised such a wise, brilliant, and mighty plan. Amen. This is the eternally foreordained and predestined plan of God coming to pass before our very eyes as He saves His people from their sins. And all of the salvation that the Lord has prepared is poured out through the centrality and primacy of the cross. That's the wisdom of God. That's the calling. I want you to see lastly the certainty. The certainty. Look at verse 25. How can we know for sure that God will definitely succeed in accomplishing His plan? We've seen what it is, but how do we know that He's really going to do all that He's purposed to do? God has a people that He is saving. How can we trust that He's going to save everyone He intends to save? Well, because as verse 25 said, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The gospel cannot fail because it was formed in the wisdom of God and it is accompanied by the power of God to accomplish everything God has purposed from before the foundation of the world. Amen. Yet the natural man lives his life entirely clueless of this marvelous thing that God has done. Amen. There's people in Paris, in Dover, Russellville, wherever... They're walking down the street. They're breathing God's air. They're living this life, but they're not really alive. Right. Amen. They're clueless of what God has done. They know nothing about it. You knew nothing about it. That's it. Before God called you. For a man to go to hell, all God has to do is leave him alone. You got it. God doesn't have to create sin in in our hearts. All he has to do is remove his restraining hand. But aren't you glad that God didn't leave mankind alone? Even now in 2021, God is still calling sinners unto Himself. He's still revealing to them what an amazing thing He's done on their behalf. Avery Rogers, not Adrian, but Avery Rogers used to say, Salvation is God in time letting you in on what He's already done for you in eternity. Amen. Friends, this is the irresistible call of the gospel. So in closing, I'm going to ask you a very personal and a very pointed question. Have you been called? I know you've been called outwardly. Those of you who've been here for months now, you've been called outwardly. I'm not asking that. I'm asking, has the inward call of the gospel so penetrated your heart that it has overcome your unbelief, driven out your self-righteousness, and brought you to see the altogether lovely Lord Jesus dying in your place to accomplish your salvation? Have you been called of God? I don't know your heart, but you know your heart. You may have fooled all of us, You may even fool yourself at times, but you will never fool God. Amen. Now I want to stress what I'm about to say. Some have radically abused this teaching of the sovereign call of God. Scripture teaches it. It is abundantly clear. But there are those who have abused this teaching. And they say something like this, well, if this is true that I can only be saved if God calls me, well, then I guess there's nothing for me to do. And they say to me, well, preacher, I don't come to church. I don't try to live a godly life. I just figure if God's going to save me, He'll call me. Well, it's true that there's nothing you can do to save yourself, but if you don't know with divine certainty that God has called you and made you one of His own and saved you by His grace, there is something you must do. See, the Bible doesn't give us this language of, well, if God hasn't called me, I guess I'm off the hook. No, the Bible says that God commands all men everywhere to repent. The Bible says over and over to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Make your calling and election sure. Amen. So if you're uncertain with your standing before God, you must plead with Him and cry out to Him. See, some people think that we have a, a problem preaching those glorious texts that say, Whosoever will, let him come. God did love the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him. See, I I can quote that and preach that and believe that with all my heart because yes, it's true that God calls those He saves, but I have no idea of knowing who God has called or will call until they believe. Mm -hmm. Amen. Those who say, well, I don't know if God's called me. Well, I, I can say, well, I don't know either, but I know this, if you don't believe, I guarantee you He hasn't. If you've never repented of your sin, I guarantee you He hasn't called you. But I can guarantee you this, though I can't look into your heart and see that faith, I can only see the fruits as they manifest themselves, I can guarantee you this, if you repent of your sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you can rest assured, you can pillow your head, you can point your toes towards heaven, and you can know that the mighty, sovereign God of the universe has personally called you to be His child. So quit sitting around, waiting on God to call you, and repent and believe. You'll never find comfort or assurance in the philosophies of men. Oh, but there is sweet and precious peace and understanding in the call of the gospel when it is realized in your life through the fruits of repentance and faith. So repent and believe. And keep on repenting and keep on believing and cling to Christ and forsake everything else and trust in the promise that all who come unto Him through a repented faith shall receive eternal life. He shall receive them, they shall receive life, and He shall in no wise cast them out. Amen. That's what Paul was talking about. The wisdom of God. It's the wisdom of God that has planned this. It's the foolishness of man that says, work harder, try better, strive more, and then maybe you will be saved. That's an empty, hopeless religion. Amen. Don't trust on yourself for your own personal salvation. Don't trust on yourself for your sanctification. But forsake it all. Come to Christ. Believe in Him. And rest in the finished work of Calvary. Mm -hmm. Let's pray. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for the gift of the Word of God. Lord, I'm so thankful that You are so wise. Oh, that You are so far above and beyond what we could ever be. Lord, be pleased to keep issuing that inward efficacious call of the Gospel by Your irresistible grace calling sinners unto Yourself. Do it for Your honor and Your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.